This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 104th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is a man who last talked to me about, well, it was started out with the greatest fuck you, I'm going to kill you stare off in the history of action cinema. And then it broadened into like one of the most illuminating and fascinating discussions about the life of being someone's sponsor when they're on Narcotics Anonymous. <laughs> this man is one of the nicest guys in the biz in Oz um, and like a friend and a mentor and even just like giving me great mentoring advice at the beginning of this podcast before it was not even recording. His name is Oscar Hillestrom. You would know him in Oz if you're around at for the Sci-Fi Channel, ABC Radio, TV, Channel 10, Showtime, co-founder of Empire Australia, ran Popcorn Taxi. He's a legend, and he's. Uh, I'm. I'm very stoked to call him my friend, Oscar. Welcome back to One Heat Minute, mate. I'm stoked to be here myself. It's a terrific thing. I'm so glad that it's blossomed, and that you've started to gather the good people uh, to talk about the greatest remake of all time. <laughs> oh, did you? Did he just say that? Did he just say that, folks? He did, and he's right. Heat is, in fact, a remake of L.A. Takedown. You would have heard in recent episodes, Mike Vanderbilt and I went off on a massive tangent about it. L.A. Takedown, the TV movie. Xander Berkeley as Wangro. I mean, <laughs> Ralph for Wangro. Holy shit. This is insane. Um, Michael Rooker as Bosco. Oh, my God. Michael Rooker as Bosco. Seriously? How good is that? that? That actually, that still plays. He could yeah. have totally done it a second yeah. time. But there's too much, like, bluster in... Um, Rooker to like go against Pacino like you kind of you know you've got um that's one great choice that um that's one great choice that oh my god I've just blanked on his name what am I Ted Levine Ted Levine there you go that's one great choice that Ted Levine makes he like really brings it back like he's still like scenery chewing he's got that walrus moustache but he kind of dials it back in look before uh, when Ted needs to go big he can go big oh (laughs) can he ever he can go big. He can tuck it yeah. back. Yeah, he can have oh. lotion. He can have small dogs. I mean, this is the year of widows, so there's a small white dog. But I just think, you know, no one's talking about retrospectively talking about that poor white dog in Silence of the Lambs. I mean, what a star! There's a long, there's a long history of unkept, unkept pets in serial killer movies, but <laughs> let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. Before right. we dive into the 104th minute, I just wanted to talk about a huge shout out to. Um, as as Oscar, you know, it was lovely to say the show has blossomed and there's been some really fantastic correspondence. And I just wanted to give a couple of shout outs to a few folk who did reach out uh, on the show. Um, Tony McIver um, has been reaching out. So thank you, Tony. Um, he's been talking about some great um, 
some great stuff written on Thief in the Quietest and talking about Michael Mann. So he put me onto that. So thank you, um, Tony. So uh, this is what I love about Michael Mann fans, Oscar. They're all fastidious researchers. So like I just get links and don't think that I don't read them. I absolutely do. They're just like, they're my bookmarks. So um, I want to say thanks there to Tony. But this one's going to blow your mind. So... This is from John Glenn. This is one of the coolest emails. I'm going to try and read as much of it as verbatim um, as we can. So, he's, you know, firstly, he says, I love the podcast. As a fellow dad of a young kid, I love the show's escaping to movie minutia that time doesn't often allow these days. So thanks for that. It's great to hear other Heat fans explore the script details and acting nuances I've enjoyed for so long. Um, I was first made, uh, made aware of Heat in the fall of 95. The press kit arrived at my college newspaper about a month before its US release. Seeing the cast and a few preview images, I couldn't wait to see the film. The first screening blew me away. They're like a commonly available shape charge. Like you, I've seen it several dozen times on various home media platforms since then. Every time you mention the movie's 170 minutes, I'm surprised since it never feels like a three-hour investment. I'm only 30 episodes into the podcast, so this is perhaps a point that's come up later, and it literally hasn't. I've been saving it for this episode. So, John, if you're listening, this is now 104 episodes, and it hasn't come in. He goes, thanks for indulging me. For as much as been said about the discipline and professionalism of Neil's crew, there's an epic failure of losing Wayne Go in that diner parking lot. How did four career criminals lose a guy in the span of 45 seconds? Did they really have to stare at the passing squad car at the same time? I understand Wayne Go has to go missing for the movie plot to go along. While I hate to blaspheme against Michael Mann's script, it's a pretty giant hole in the structure. I prefer if Wayne Go, also a career bad guy, don't forget, sniffed out the hit, slipped out on his own. Imagine, you know, um, um, from this uh, little window, Wayne Go sneaks a peek at Neil in the parking lot, racking and concealing a gun, so he says he has to piss and slips out the back door. I confess I haven't read much of the extended criticism of the film, but this is a common grievance for an otherwise um, masterpiece. So that was from John. I love that because that was so close to the minutes we talked about. Exactly. No, no, he's exactly right. Neil should have kept his uh, at least a knee in the back of the guy's uh, neck, uh, maybe even a foot. Uh, yes. But he just you could see he wasn't even he wasn't even aware that he'd gone. Obviously. It's a very important plot device. Wayne Grow on the Loose is extremely useful and the entirety of the movie wouldn't happen without it. But still, um, you know, it's a slip-up. And I think it's fair to say that even a professional like Neil McCauley and his hard-bitten crew who are all prepared, you know, people make mistakes. People, people make mistakes, John. And I think it's, you know, ultimately Neil paid for it. So, you know, if you're going to fuck up, eventually you'll be shot to death in a... Um, uh, LA Airport. So, yeah, <laughs> I think I read that on a fortune cookie, but um, I was just. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a disturbing fortune cookie. <laughs> so, right? Jesus, that's specific. Is. Jesus. Look, I really think that's a thing. And uh, if you're an entrepreneur out there and you want to start putting uh, painful deaths into fortune cookies, please. Painful right movie in. deaths. Painful yeah. movie deaths. Uh, I yeah, Oh, you, you've got an audience here for it. I, 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 I totally agree. I think um, we did, you know, so in, in Oscar and I um, had a chat and then almost immediately, so it's a bit of a crossover of minutes, we, uh, I spoke to Joe Lynch. And so I think Oscar and I both touched on it and then it was Joe Lynch. So I thought it would be fitting to talk with either Oscar or Joe in follow-up is this is the kind of mystique and wraith-like quality of Wayne Grow, And I think it's there's a there's such a sprinkling of that 
you know, chaotic unpredictability that I think maybe, you know, formed one of the 11 secret herbs and spices of Heath Ledger's Joker. And I just think it's just one of those things that there's a, especially as there's a scene, this is just a, a flash in the scene where Neil stares into like this blackness, this chasm, this dark LA um, hallway, there's this sort of haunting tree, there's lights going off into the distance. And I feel like in that moment, like there's a haunting race-like quality to Wayne Grow that he's almost like a bad omen. And he's like, a you know, in that moment, it's it's man not sort of teetering into the fantastical, but it's also, you know, this is an evil guy. And I just feel like in this moment, it's like it's the most like he's one of those ring race that, you know, he is in this entire movie. So I, I tend to love it. I, I agree with you, Oscar. I love that it's a fuck up. It's just the perfect fuck up as well because these guys are so perfect. And you think, oh, one minor fuck up's not going to come back. And then as soon as he walks into Van Zandt's office, you're like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> that was a big fuck up because, you know, they're already battling the cops. And now, you know, they've got Van Zandt on their tail as well. Oh, well, I think I just want to take your piece about um... – Wayne Grove being wraith-like, I, I think your take on that is fair enough because you look the way he's shot in the hotel room, the way he leans into the camera, you, you're, you know, do you know who you're visiting with tonight? Um, obviously, it's there's no elements of supernatural uh, to the movie, but I think um, the hint of it, the idea of it, is definitely something that follows Wayne Grove around. And, you know, eventually when Michael comes on, you can ask him point blank and say, what the fuck? Uh, but seriously, uh, there is that element. The way he's shot, um, he really does, there's a grin to his evil. Um, and you're absolutely right, that chaotic effect. And obviously that as a plot device, but also in the way that Kevin Gage plays him. He really leans into the evil uh, for a dramatic and, you know, intoxicating effect. Yeah. Absolutely stunning performance. I'm still, again, anytime we get to talk about Wayne Grow in this, I'm just like, Kevin Gage completely crushed it out of the park in this movie and should have done 40 other movies. Like, even if he was typecast as, like, crazy serial, he was, he was always, yeah. like, a heavy. You know, he, yeah. he seemed like you could cast him as a heavy, throw him in Con Air, he looks like a crook, yeah, whatever. But, man, he just had so much more charm. I think there's mm. the charm that they, this movie understood um, as well as that darkness in there as well. But this is another cracker. Again, 104 episodes. You guys have heard the one eight-minute theme. You know, if you've listened to every episode, you've heard it 208 times because it tops and tails the show. Um, and you've also heard that, you know, the the, the cover, uh, you know, the new Dawn Fades track in the actual scenes that it was unfolding. But Stephen Tomlinson sent me this email a while back. Stephen, if you're listening... You're awesome. Not sure if you're aware, but the Moby music from the helicopter scene referenced in episodes 93-4 is a cover of Joy Division's New Dawn Fades, whose lyrics and general tenor of urban loneliness, alienation, and despair couldn't be more relevant. So he even pasted the lyrics in. The lyrics are a change of speed, a change of style, a change of scene with no regrets, a chance to watch, admire the distance, still occupied, though you forget. Different colors, different shades. Over each, mistakes were made. I took the blame. And I wanted to play for, for Oscar and I and for you guys just a little bit of the... Um, I'm just going to share the, uh, share my uh, um, screen with you, Oscar, now just so you can you can have a listen and hopefully it's all, it all comes through. But this is the track for you guys to listen to. I'm going to fast forward into the meatiness of the middle. You recognize that little lick? 
That's amazing. I had never heard of it. A Joy Division fan out there, also a massive Heat fan. And what are the odds? How strange is that? I just never heard of, had heard of it before. I love I love the people who listen to this podcast because that is just like such a heat factoid that it's just not it's just not known. It, it is not even discussed. A Joy Division cover is in this movie. Wow, fantastic! Well, one of the most interesting things about I think fans of heat when you look at the I don't know, say the opening shots where you've got Neil going down the elevator and his head is exactly in the middle of the two pylons, I guess, between the camera and uh, the, ele- uh, the uh, escalator. And it's, it's a perfectly framed shot and it's a perfectly timed shot. And you look at it and you think, Jesus Christ, Michael Mann is being unutterably specific about how everything is done here. And I think the precision of the way that he's set up this movie and put it together and the way that the people have combined the actors in particular and obviously Dante Spinotti and the music all over it, it resonates with a certain kind of person, which is the certain kind of person who does 179 minutes of heat, <laughs> but also the kind of person who listens to it. And I, we're all in the same frequency. And I think at some point you've got to admit it and enjoy it rather than rebel against it and deny it. <laughs> film love is all about and perhaps what drives so many film critics today is that the pure joy of finding out the factoids, just like we've just heard, is what makes a film like Heat so intoxicating so many years later. It's, yeah, I, I, and something about so obvious, like I, I should really know you know, I should really know that. It's such a weird thing. It's like it, the things that sneak up on you and they don't annoy me. They just make me happy. I'm like someone out there was like, oh, Blake needs to know the lyrics to Joy Division's New Dawn Fates, which I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like They probably saved that somewhere on a file and it's there and they've got a copy of it and I've now since listened to it many times, that track, because it's just like it reminds me, you know, it reminds me of the show and reminds me of the film. So cool. All right. We're going to dive into this minute. We're right in the thick of it. Also, last time we talked about Tom Sizemore's Michael Torito in this scene a couple of times. He's telling people in the crowd to sit down. He's getting fired up. We're seeing his menace in full force in the job. So let Oscar and I watch the 104th minute. You guys come along and uh, let's go rob a bank together. Get on your knees. Get on your knees. Hey, hey, get over there. Get the fuck. Get, get Turn down. Around. Turn around. Put your hands behind you. Behind you. Behind you. Get out! Stay down! Get out! Get out! Get out, you stupid son of a... Go, go, go! Keith! 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 Stay down. We want to hurt no one. We're here for the bank's money, not your money. Your money is insured by the federal government. You're not going to lose a dime. Think of your families. Don't risk your life. Don't try and be a hero. Right now, I want you to sit on the floor and put your hands on your head. Anybody feel sick? Anybody got heart trouble? Go ahead and lean against the wall. Give me the key. Get out! And stay out! Sit there. Sit there. Don't move. Let it bleed. Well, you know, that's just... um, I think anybody who wants to uh, learn about editing 
So just watch that 400 times and they'll be fine. <laughs> just, watch, just watch that 400 times. That's your curriculum, guys, and yeah. that's enough. Yeah, and, totally. it's un- and And what's so good is there are plenty of edits in that sequence we've just watched, but none of them feel disruptive. It, no. you, it's un- and the clinical like timing of it that it still feels like it's unfolding in real time, such mm-hmm. a ripper of a minute, such yeah. a ripper. There is so much to discuss in this in this particular section. A, the editing as a whole, where there are two styles of editing. One is uh, precision of uh, telling you what's actually happening, and then it's the precision of the feeling of what's going on. You've got the movement of the characters. You'll see a couple of flows from left to right as the camera moves and then from right to left as the camera moves, as Macaulay's jumping up and down, which is just brilliant. There's a beautiful flow to it. But then also um, the pacing uh, changes. You've got a couple of sharp paces with the edits and then there's a flow and then it goes back to it. And then, of course, is the um, negotiation technique where you deal with somebody who's being uh, difficult at the bank. (laughs) You just... You just punch him in the face and grab <laughs> And I'm not saying that you should go into your local Westpac bank and do that, um, because that would be illegal, but I feel that it would be highly effective. Uh, it's just Look, insane. what's undeniable is that, yeah. is that when, when a banker is lying to you, a punch in the face <laughs> often <laughs> helps reveal the truth. It could have saved Australia a Royal Commission, Oscar. But um, yep. it's, it's, it's so lovely. And you're so right. Is the, there's a masterclass of different editorial styles here and like different filmmakers and even from the class, you know, the, the, the people who you, they teach you lessons about with the John Fords and, and, and those guys and the Hawkses who had such an innate ability to d- display power mm-hmm. with the camera. And I think yep. here, even like we're just, I'm just playing it on mute for Oscar and I, so we're just sort of watching it unfold. But yep. when we're still, when, when they're still taking the bank, it's all. It's very. Uh, it's up close and personal. And when we finally see them start to ascend, and they and they take complete command, the smarts of it is once they're all in their gear, they're all in the balaclavas. Because it takes twenty odd seconds before Val Kilmer even has the balaclava on in the scene, which is so unusual for a bank heist movie. But I love that when Neil gets on top and he starts negotiating, the camera does a beautiful crane shot and cuts to a, an over-the-shoulder, and he's in charge. People are looking up to him. They're listening to him. He even gives that lovely little touch of, you know, um, care. It's like this beautiful, like, blossom of care. Like, if anyone, <laughs> you know, your money's insured, I'm robbing the bank. And, you know, I'm going to punch this guy in the face, the banker. You've probably wanted to punch a banker in the face before, but I'm going to punch this banker in the face. You're insured, and if you're feeling unwell, just lean against a wall. It's it's all good. You've got some heart trouble, lean against the wall. But I just that that arc up to we are now in total control. From like there's a bit of a there's a conflict. It's about asserting control, and then when he's in control, when he when he descends from that fence, it is just perfection. It's like they are in total control. No one is going to stop them. The thing I like about the storytelling. Uh, the usage of the editing where you have a close-up of one of the bank victims, in inverted commas, um, where the chap's looking up at Macaulay and he's terrified, and then Neil's going along and telling people. And then as he's facing away from camera saying, everybody just go down to the floor, 
and then you see the reaction in the long shot. Yes. Which is uh, such an indication of, of the, clearly of the power of the situation, which is I don't even have to scream and point my gun directly at people for them to get the fuck down. <laughs> yes. um, is genius because this is literally the highest point of drama and antagonism in the film, but it's underplayed. Yes. And you good God, this is a professional crew. They know what they're doing. Yes, it's scary, but it's not out of control, which is obviously why we love these guys, why we love how they do what they do. And I just want to go back and say, you know, the heist movies that have the balls that to, you know, masks are such a device, you know, even the funnest movies have mask device. You know, I think Chris McQuarrie says you can only do two mask pull-offs in a Mission Impossible movie any more than that. That's ruined, <laughs> you know, um, but it's like masks are such a great device in heist films. And, you know, even look at recent, very, very competent heist films like Ben Affleck's The Town, which I think also mm-hmm. takes a big, you know, big chunk of Michael Mann's heat as an influence. Um, masks are huge, The Dark Knight. Um, but I love in this scene so much. It's just, again, it just reinforces the messaging of the previous minutes where Val Kilmer is, they are not concerned at all about actually even having the masks on. The masks are more for looks that they're going to get throughout the job, whereas mm. they already know the cameras are shut off. It's mm. just that touch. I just love that he's, and he's not in a rush to get his mask on. It's like when the masks finally go on, they're ready for their final part of the heist. But it's in these moments, it's like, I need to neutralize this person. They're down. You know, um, Michael Chirita's already got his guy down. Neil gets his cop down on, on your knees, on your knees. He gets down, zip tie him up, bang. It's just, I also love the relationship there of like, we are so confident here. I don't need to rush to put my mask on. Mm. Michael's got his on, Neil's got his on. I'll put mine on when I've neutralized my, my corner. It's but it's also interesting with the relationship of the audience to the character where you're going, fucking hell, Chris, put your goddamn mask on. I know. bust you. But he's going, hey, dudes, I know what I'm doing. All these people are freaking out. By the time I got my mask on, then they're going to start looking at me, but they don't know who the fuck I am. Yeah. Don't it, worry about it. It's cool. It's, it, it, all these people are panicking and hyperventilating and they're only looking at my ak-47 what is it like ak-47 assault rifle they don't get like you know they're only looking at my high-powered assault rifle um and yeah yeah i think you might want to restate whether it's an ak-47 because it's not sorry. Have thirty thousand people coming oh, in and saying, <coughs> I'm, I'm literally googling this is the live google what rifle is yeah. in heat because i'm not a i'm i'm, I'm not a uh, heat internet oh my god there is an internet movie firearm database like as opposed to internet movie database oh my god there's a lot of those there's internet movie car base if you want to know which Saab was in a particular movie you can look that up as well yeah it's horrifying (laughs) it's horrifying you're right. You're absolutely right. All right, let's have a look. We've got a full list of all, so far I'm on the Berettas, everything that they've used in the early heists, just their handguns here. Let's get to the rifles. Where are we talking about our assault rifles? Ah, here we go. This is, uh, so the LAPD SWAT officer guns use the Hector and Koch HK94A3. Yep. which is a mocked up as an MP5A3. So um, that's, what they're, that's what they're shooting with. Um, yep. And incidentally, Tom Sizemore loves a Benelli M3 Super 90 shotgun, which he blows away one of Van Zandt's lackeys with. Um, but yeah, that's a, there's, 
there, there you go. So they're mock-ups of... Uh, where are we? Yeah. They're mock-ups of, yep, MP5. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. an MP5 is pretty scary. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's well, pretty as, scary. as we'll see in uncom- oncoming minutes, because everybody, everybody knows that beautiful sound of the echo in the canyon. It's unbelievable. It's just yeah. unbelievable. Even the sound in this scene, you know, oh, yeah. it's ca- that, that's what you love is the power is, you know, and, and this is where there's such a great, um, there's such great uh, senses of people in this scene, yeah. all three different guys and they're three different personalities. But, you know, Sizemore's crowd work, he's like, sit down. Like he's got that voice that's just like, oh God, it's like a roar. So you feel these people just almost hunching and, sh- and, 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 and crouching when he's, when he's there. But he's cavernous because the bank, you can, it's a pin drop until like, <laughs> until well, the, the right straight. The discipline of man and the ability to say, this soundtrack, I want the emotion to be the most powerful thing in the room. So the soundtrack is just to heighten that emotion and not to direct it. Yes. And, you know, you'll have swelling scores in certain things. You'll have high-octane energy music in certain other movies. But man says, no, no, it's the story. And that's where people react to it so so vigorously because you just have that beautiful track at the back of it, which its only goal is to jab you in the neck uh, and in the heartbeat and just go – Something is going on, and you're running out of time. Yeah, that 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 score is like bum 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 bum, and it just like literally is it is it is an erratic heartbeat, and you're just and and I what I love about it, and and I know that this is a lot of folks who love this movie love so much about that that sort of erratic heartbeat of this scene is it starts happening before anything happens. And so you can't, there's an inexplicable quality where like your body starts to, you start to be on edge and nothing has happened yet. And it happens if you've even, if you've, if there are people out there listening to the show, then you may have been like me and watch this movie more than a hundred, maybe more than 200 times. Every time I watch this scene and every time I listen to this score beat, it just happens again. It's just that perfect sense memory thing that happens. But we're right right now. We're at forty two seconds. We're just we've been scanning through this minute. People are hunching over, and people are actually listening. This is what's great about the panicked eyes, and the great Tom Noonan, <laughs> the great Tom Noonan. Um, his planning as Kelso. He they, they even knew where the bank manager with the key around his neck would be sitting. So I nice. just love that. I love that. And uh, there's some pretty bold editing there with his shirt, where obviously you haven't heard the rip and the shred and. Um, I think there would be a couple of takes where he would have, well, certainly, yeah, it would have been a couple of takes where he tried to rip the shirt out and it didn't quite work. And they said, all right, well, let's just cut back to it where the shirt's been ripped off and we've got a big hole and we can see a bit of his chest, a bit of fake blood. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Not a drama. But uh, obviously, <laughs> movie magic once more. Movie magic once more. And also, um, you just know that I love this. What I love about De Niro, and I would imagine this working across from him is, he doesn't seem like he would be gentle. Like <laughs> he just doesn't seem like that guy. Like in that heightened scene, you know, such a. So I was writing a little bit about. I was writing a piece for Flicks today and talking about transformational performances. And I was talking about Raging Bull. I was like, that's the Helen of Troy of transformational performances, right? It was like it launched a thousand imitators, but he's so so ferocious when he's like at that peak physical power. Same as like you know, Max Cady and and in this film too, where you just like 
bang, and he just drops, you know, beautiful straight cross. Like he knows what he's doing. He hits this guy, clobbers him, and then he's not, I'm not going to undo your shirt. I'm going to rip it open. And I don't care. I'm going to manhandle. I just throw you on the table and rip it out. Like if I can't, I'm not going to untuck your shirt or ask you to open a button or be, you know, pleasant. I'm just going to rip it open and go grab it. Because in my left hand here, or sorry, in my right hand, I'm nursing, you know, my MP5. <laughs> I, I'm not going to let that go. Well, I think uh, ultimately he's also, he's following Harvey Keitel's advice uh, from Reservoir Dogs, which, you know, if the bank manager gives you only static, just punch him in the nose and, <laughs> and then it become real compliant. So clearly uh, he's just following the law of how bank robbers are meant to deal with them. Um, that, that, that is so good. That is mm. so good. There was a whisper in Main Streets for their future. And they're just, yeah. you know, the, the, this is, this is <laughs> one of the rare times in any Quentin Tarantino, Michael Mann crossover that, you know, <laughs> there's, you know, they're wearing those suits. They're, they're, they're ready to go. Nice. This is the bank heist that Reservoir Dogs wish they could pull off. Those guys well, were never going to pull this off. That, um, you know, they just didn't shoot. They just didn't have the budget. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't have the budget. They made us imagine. They made us imagine. They took us straight to the Jeremy Piven scene. Exactly. Except exactly. It was a, except it was yeah, yeah, bingo. That's the one. <laughs> like, all right, cool. We want to do. We want to do heat. We want to do LA takedown. <laughs> we, don't, <laughs> we don't have the money. Um, so just. Uh, Cut the script in half and shoot it in 19 days. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Some great movies have been shot in 19 days. My gosh. Really good, really good choices of close-ups here. Getting mm. close. Uh, there's something about when you could see the pleats on someone's <laughs> shirt. You know, yep. this, is a, this is a person who was not expecting to be face down on the ground. And like... Chris is still manhandling here, even though he's unconscious. Get down, listen, bang, done. Well, the other thing is the the actual skill that's required to tie somebody up with one hand. <laughs> yeah, with one hand and also nursing an MP5 that is actually in the butt of your shoulder, ready to take a yep. shot, and usually your finger just hovering over. And these guys, that's what's so, again, the, the preparation for all of these guys to go and have a have a play with these tactical weapons and play with all that training, It's it just shows in these sequences because it's not a moment that they look uncomfortable. Exactly. Everything just looks casual. Mm. I can't even do Ikea furniture, Oscar, without getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, practice makes And I think that's important. That's important. That's really important. Look, I haven't had as many stakes. I haven't had as as high as stakes as getting this all done. Look at that. Look at that zip tie work. Yeah. So good. So the other one is obviously the, the crane shots, over the overhead shots where they're setting up the geography of the, the scene so you can see where people are going. And then there's this beautiful swap here right there uh, where he goes across the room and then you cut. And you're you're literally you're crossing the plane, which is you know kind of in most most people it's it's a no no, but in this situation it works perfectly. And, and you've always got somebody looking at him in the foreground or in the background. So the you've got this guy here who's looking up at him, but then when you go back to him, you've got people looking up that way. At every situation, the bank robber that you're looking at is being looked at by people on screen. And it's the classic, how do you create a hero? You have other people talk about it. Yes. And this is happening, but 
but not talking, obviously, just visually with people looking. It's amazing. And and this just precisely, if you guys want to look at it, it's, it's, it's about between about 26 seconds about 32 seconds it does this beautiful this beautiful sort of ballet of cuts and it's and it's that um it's it's something that's happening very subtly and i like what you said oscar is like we first it's not only the geography of um it's it's not only the geography of the scene it's the geography of the perspective and that's how they get away with it you know as you said it's it's that great thing it's usually a no-no but it's like Every one of the great things about the cinematography here is that everyone's in focus. It's just this great, the, you know, the you, enough people are in focus so that when it cuts back, you're you're seeing very clearly. Even though in the deep background you're not quite catching all of those folk, but the people in the midground, you can almost see their eyes, like the, even the, the like exactly pinned to Neil, and they're listening and hanging on every word. And as his head turns towards them or his attention's on them, that's when people are in the crispest focus that they possibly can be. Um, and it's it's just so great. And again, well, we're, we're, there's just such an art to the anticipation and, the, you know, and, and setting up the stakes of like, there are people in here, they don't want to kill them. You know, again, um, I think one one thing that keeps resonating with me now is listening to a more recent interview with Michael Mann about this film is that in his design, he was so intent on making you want to root for either the cops or the crooks, no matter who was on screen. So yeah. right now, and, and that's what the, you know, we're about to get into the absolutely glorious, you know, um, ebb and flow of like, rooting for the cops and the crooks in the, in the exchange that's about to come up. But in here, you want them to succeed in this. The, you, I think you touched on it earlier. It's just so perfect. It's like you, there's not a moment that you don't want them to get through it. You're like, God damn it, Chris, put your freaking mask on. Come on. <laughs> Give him the key, you idiots. Give him the key. <laughs> you know, make this well, easy for everyone. It's the relationship that the robbers have with their victims. That's why everybody's in focus. If you wanted to have it just about the – uh, sexy stylings of how to be a bank robber, you just focus on them and the people in the bank don't exist. But the danger of somebody being executed by accident, the danger of somebody becoming part of the problem, this adds to the tension of the scene. And you can see why that's been, why everybody's in focus, because they're all people. And obviously later on down the track that we have very specific interaction between innocent bystanders and cops and robbers. And they, that also tells a story about the character of the people that we're watching on screen. And it's just, once again, Michael Mann knowing exactly what he's doing in about and how to tell a story. And it's this beautiful symphony of emotion where he really understands how it plays out in the mind of the viewer. And that's why, you know, 23 years down the track, what is it? No, gosh, yeah. Anyway, a long time. Um, <laughs> 95 to... Yes, you, your math is right. It's 23 years. Yeah. Next year, 24. Oh, good God. Anyway, uh, it's just remarkable just how well it holds up. So, yeah. And the, the, the other thing is, one of the most interesting things about this movie is that the fact that it was 95, at that intersection of paper and digital, it makes the heist so much more interesting because yes. nowadays... You just Google it, say how to, you know, just, oh, press this button and it'll make the bank stop working and you just walk in. Those days, you had to put it together. You ha you'd need Tom Lennon to help sort you out. And it makes another layer of complexity and it's part of a caper. 
and it's the caper factor that makes it fun. How are they going to pull it off? Well, this is how they're pulling it off. And, and in a world with omnipresent cameras, you yeah. know, you just know that some dipstick in this scene pulls a camera. <laughs> you know, like in, in, the, in 2018, someone's got a camera phone. And so it's important for Chris, even more important for Chris to have a mask on. You know, exactly. I think you got the more modern uptakes. It's like um, that was one thing that worked really well for the town is that, you know, there was surveillance all over the place. They're being surveilled by, you know, just local public, you know, you know, public protection, you know, uh, uh, in, in public parks and things like that. There were gleaning shots of cars here, there, everywhere, and they would sort of disappear into dark spots in the town in, 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 um, in Boston. And I think here it's... That's that's one of the large things that I like about it is that it seems to be work because I'm sure that even in the modern age, and this is like a testament to good filmmakers and good storytellers, in the modern age, there's a little bit of – there's got to be effort for people to do this stuff. It might be a violent person. There might be hacking that needs to happen. But I think there's this like stupid shorthand that happens where they just go <laughs> tap and like it works. And what's cool is, no, I want to see them read a blueprint and I want to see a guy underneath a car garage the night before, like drilling in to find the computer mainframe. Like I need to see that stuff. That gives me the, in this moment, to then focus purely on the physicality and the motion and this is what they're doing. No, I'm not worried about an alarm going off. I'm not worried about those other states because they, they don't care about it. And I think here as well, man gets what the authenticity of emotion of people who are being in a robbery. Like, these people are wilted already. Like, we're 20 seconds in and they're done. Like, can you imagine the emotional trauma of just a normal person seeing someone with an MP5 pointed in their face, even if it's for the briefest moment? Like, there's no... Not every movie has, like, six undercover cops in the bank. You know, every movie has that where there's, like, all these brave people, like, ready to do something. It's like, no. What's great about this movie is that everyone's terrified, even the guards, because they know they're outmatched. Like... Mm. They know they're at match. These guys come in. They know what they're doing. And so it's even more heightened like, oh, my God, these guys know exactly what they're doing. I'm just going to stay as still as I possibly can and hopefully survive this thing because if I do anything, if I take a step out of place, these guys aren't going to hesitate. No, it's the testament to man that we're still feeling that um, watching it uh, the 50th time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to my dear friend Oscar again for one heat minute. There is so much to talk about. I mean, we've we've got a we've got another um, a bunch of guests uh, clamoring at the moment to talk about different minutes. There's a double um, episode coming up with Joe Lynch, who is uh, he's made a documentary actually on on the high scene, and so he's as promised in the upcoming episode. You're going to hear from Joe, um, uh, so I'm really excited for that. But there's plenty of other amazing folk we're going to be talking to very shortly. I've been thrilled to be talking to Oscar again and sharing with you some of the great folk who listen to the show, some of their great emails and things like that. But sir, thank you for your love and your mentoring and your friendship and for your um, for your third appearance on this show this crazy little show <laughs> that's gathering gathering steam every episode thank you so much for being a part of it again mate blake it's a pleasure to be here and i look forward to coming back yes yes he'll be back folks this has been another episode of one heat minute we'll catch you next time on another episode just around the corner but watch out don't stand behind a moving bus because Valkyrie was going to spot you watch out we'll catch you soon see you